week 13 already of our John series, Believe and Live. And um, just, just real quick, in case you haven't gotten all of the weeks or, or maybe just a few of them, the Gospel of John is such a spectacular book because it's, uh, it's the recording of the telling of Jesus' earthly ministry by a man who says that he was Jesus' best friend. The Bible says he was Jesus' best friend. And so it's different than all of the Gospels. We actually get to see, <coughs> excuse me, we actually get to see a lot of information that is connected to the other Gospels, but maybe in a little bit different light. And so we've been walking through the Gospel of John uh, in, in small chunks. It's going to take us a while to get through, but we feel like it's a worthwhile endeavor for our benefit, for the benefit of the church, but for the benefit of individual souls, just to see uh, how Jesus works in the lives of people while he's here on earth, to celebrate what he does through his life, death, and resurrection. It's, it's spectacular. And so we're going to spend some time today, and we're actually in, in John 5. We're going to wrap up John 5 today. And so I just want to run you through what happened in the first part of John so that you can kind of be caught up on what's going on in case you weren't here or like most of us just forgot what I said last week, because uh, that's real. So, and if you're taking notes in your John journal, please you know, keep up with that. We have extra ones in the back if you forgot it or you don't have one. You're welcome to grab it and uh, grab a new one if you need to. And here's, here's where we were last week. We, had a, we witnessed a significant interaction that led to a shift in Jesus' earthly ministry. Um, basically, the beginning of chapter 5 marks the point in which Jesus inferior, he, he, makes, uh, he makes them so mad, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, he infuriates them so much that basically at this point, they start plotting how they're going to kill him. And how does he do this? He heals a man. He heals a man, but he does it on the Sabbath. And if you remember back to the story, there was a man uh, who was burdened for 38 years with disease. It says it was an invalid, so he had some kind of thing that was holding him back, unable uh, physical uh, impairment that was making it so he couldn't move around. He basically just sat by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years trying to be healed. And Jesus walks up to him and says, do you want to be healed? And like most people, he starts to defend himself and come up with excuses of why he's not healed. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not what I asked. Not why aren't you healed? Do you want to be healed? And so we talked about the idea that a lot of times Jesus wants to do something great in our lives and we're just getting in our own way. We're coming up with excuses. And then he, and then he actually heals him and he tells him, <clears throat> pick up your mat and walk. And it's that easy. It's that easy. He heals a man, the man gets up. He, after 38 years, he's able to move around, and what a spectacular sight that must be. But because he did it on the Sabbath, it sends the religious leaders into a frenzy. It sends them into just this furious frenzy. And he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop at just saying, at just doing the miracle. He actually starts a discourse with them, and he says, um, I am the Son of God. Which, as we talked about last week, basically says, uh, not only did Jesus indeed claim to be the Son of God, but it makes him either who he says he is or a crazy person. Because he claims to be uh, equal with God in nature and power and authority. And we walked through how he does all of those things. And as you might suspect, it, it, it just continues to make them more angry and more angry and more angry. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today. 
we're going to continue the conversation or the argument, rather, that Jesus is having with the religious leaders. Now, given all that had happened in the section that we covered last week, I actually think it would be reasonable at this point for Jesus just to walk away. He would be totally justified at saying, you know what? You guys are hopeless. I'm just going to move on. But for whatever reason, some gracious reason, he decides, I'm not going to do that. And he knows that even though the conversation he's about to continue to have will net him nothing other than continued frustration and eventual death, he continues to have the conversation. And the rest of the conversation that he has in this chapter is him defending himself in sort of a court of public opinion, but really the court of religious opinion. He gives five examples that show people, specifically religious people, this is why you should believe I am who I say I am. This is why you should believe I am the Son of Man. I am God himself. <clears throat> so we're going to dive into that in just a second. But I just I want to lay this before you before we, before we get into that. You know, Jesus is about to give basically a foolproof argument for his deity. And he's going to do so. And it's going to actually prove, as, as you'll find, that he is indeed the Messiah. But his argument, as I said, will continue to enrage them, and he points that out. He points that out in this passage. And he's not interested at all, as you're going to find out, in appeasing the religious leaders. He's interested in telling them the truth. But what we're going to find, as we often find today, is some people just are not interested in actually changing the way they think or what they believe. They're only interested in hearing the things that support what they already think and what they already believe. I used to think, uh, myself, I used to think that if I just could be the smartest person that someone would know, that they would just buy everything that I say. But my wife's not having it, so <laughs> I can attest that it doesn't work. Right, dear? Having the best argument, having, as Jesus is going to do, having a strong argument is indeed a useful thing in most situations. Take, for example, the legal arena. It's important to bring your best argument forward. You should be a good arguer if you're going to be in the legal arena. Or how about the scholastic arena? If you're in school, it's your job to prove that what you're saying is mostly or totally true. How about the political arena? Wouldn't it be nice if everything they said was indeed true, that their arguments were indeed foolproof? But when it comes to matters of the heart, as we're going to see today, when it comes to matters of the heart, the best argument never draws people together. Arguing just won't do it. If anything, it drives people to further disagreement. It puts a wedge between them. So rather than arguing, if you really believe that you have, and this is just from me to you, if you really believe that you have the right answer, then I would suggest that living as a shining example of what you believe is the best way to go about life. For the Christian, legislating, arguing, ramming our beliefs down the throats of people who disagree with us is only going to drive them further away. Instead, we are giving a, we're given an example through Jesus, and it's a relational one. It's one that Jesus was, 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 was living out with his actions. He was present, and he was proximate with the people that he was influencing. He was with them. And even if you are indeed the smartest person in your social circle, 
which some of you may be. You're some, some smart people in here. Trust me. I've talked to all of you. You're very smart. But even if you are the smartest person in your social circle, you're not smarter than Jesus. I'll just break that news to you now. <laughs> so you'd be wise to follow his example to be loving and relational in the way that you interact with people. That's the way that you're going to influence them. We talked about this earlier a couple chapters ago. Jesus came full of grace and truth. We would do wise to mimic his example. So yeah, he is going to argue with them today, but it's because that's the way they want to go about it. It's because he has already been relational with them. He's been present with them. And we're going to see how he's done some of the miracles he's done. He's going to use those for proofs. And he knows that the customs of the day would, would basically drag him into this circle, that if he were to leave, as I would probably do, that it would just, it would just wipe out any chance he has of influencing them. But instead, even though he knows it's just going to be like hitting his head against the wall harder and harder and harder for you know, however long it goes on, he's, he says, they're worth it. I'm going to engage them. And so he actually gives five witnesses. He gives what I'm going to call five exhibits. If we're going to go with the courtroom theme. He gives five witnesses to his deity. He says these five things, um, and this is the discourse we're going to read in John chapter 5, starting in 30. He's going to give five things that are going to say, he's going to say, listen. Listen to these things, and then you will know that I am who I say I am. So let's pick up the story in, story in John chapter 5, verse 30. You can read on the screen, in your device, in your Bible, however you prefer. It says this, I can do nothing on my own. This is Jesus talking. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And as my judgment is just, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, being God. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Basically saying, if it's only me that believes this, if it's only me that can prove this, then I get it. You're not going to believe me. But he says that there is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Then he says, you sent John, being John the Baptist, not John the author of this book, but John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Now that the testimony that I, re not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So exhibit A is John the baptizer. It's the first example that Jesus gives. John the baptizer was a man that the Jews were very interested in hearing from. Uh, as he says here, they, they would send leaders all the time to just hear what John was saying, because he was sort of this weirdo, like uh, Kelly, Pastor Kelly would call him like the original Christian hipster, right? Because he was just kind of out in the wilderness saying these crazy things, and people were drawn to it. They were like, yes, I have to hear. So they would also send people. And he would speak about the things that they believe in their faith and the scriptures, and he would do so with incredible accuracy and knowledge. And so he would be what we would consider an expert witness on the subject. In fact, he gave his testimony a little earlier, and I want to read that to you as well. It's in the first chapter of this book, John, where we refresh ourselves. He says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. 
Are you a prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, now they have been sent, now they had been sent from the Pharisees, basically saying that the people that were asking these questions were sent from the religious leaders, the Pharisees. So they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So Jesus starts this defense, this conversation of defending himself with the religious leaders by saying, listen, um, the testimony of that expert John, the one that you were so interested in hearing, he's pointing to me. He's pointing to me and John's saying that I'm the one. And it's one that the religious leaders, a testimony that the religious leaders of the day would have been excited about hearing because they believed John. So Jesus is pointing to him saying, you believe him. So why don't you believe what I'm saying? If he's saying, I am the one, then why don't you believe? But the greater testimony that John gives is the fact that he actually gives his life for Jesus. He gives his life. He was killed for telling the truth to the people who were in power, and they weren't interested in hearing it. So I asked this question, why in the world would someone give their life to something that they did not wholeheartedly believe and Jesus understood that. He said, you look to John for answers. You look to him. You were interested in hearing what he had to say until he started saying, I am who I say I am. I am Jesus. I am the son of man. And now you're frustrated. So that's the first example that Jesus gives to defend himself. The second one, exhibit B, is the works that Jesus did. Starting in verse 36, he goes on. He says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So even though John is a great example, right? Even though I feel like that's full proof, I have a better one. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus continues his argument by saying, just in case, just in case you decided that John's not a worthy example, just look at the miracles that my father is allowing me to do, right? Because we just got done last week, and this was just basically in the same conversation, watching Jesus heal a man who couldn't walk for 38 years, and he did it in an instant. He says, pick up your mat and walk, and he does. That's a pretty amazing example, right? You'd have to, I mean, that would be a good ploy, right? If they pulled that off for 38 years, he's like, 38 years ago, he's like, you sit here, and 38 years, I'll come back. And I'll tell you to walk, and you get up and walk, right? Like, that would be impressive, but it wasn't the case, obviously. It was real. Jesus healed him. The other things that he does, he turns water into wine, right? The wedding at Cana. He tells Nathaniel, one of, the, one of the, the young men who started to follow him, he says, I knew you under the fig tree, referring to an interaction that he had spiritually with Nathaniel before he ever actually knew Nathaniel. Nathaniel's like, oh my gosh, yes. Only I could have known that, and yes, I believe in you. He tells the woman at the well about her life. We read about that story, right? He says, who's your husband? She says, I have none. He says, yeah, you're right. You've had five, and you're living with the next one. And she's like, 
How did you know that? You must indeed be God, the Messiah. And so she goes and she tells all of the people in her town, you have to meet this guy, Jesus. And he uses the thing that's working against her. He turns it around and he says, go use this. Tell them who I am. And she does. And then he, he heals the official son, which is what we saw in chapter four. He, he's healed the official son and now the man. So he's, he's done these miraculous things and he's basically saying, you want proof? I've given it to you. And if you want more proof, why don't you just come and follow me and see what I'm about to do? Jesus, Jesus does the same thing for us, if you think about it. He says, do you, do you want proof? Just, just trust me and watch what I will do in your life. Watch the new and better things that I will do. It's actually a pretty spectacular thing because he wants to change your life. And he's doing something that makes the people he's arguing with even more uncomfortable because he's starting now to shift the burden of proof from himself to them. He's starting to shift the burden of proof from himself to them because he says, uh, a person who you trusted is saying that I am who I say I am and now you've seen me do all of these things. What else could you possibly want? They observed his miracles, his teachings, They've heard, uh, they've, they've seen other people give their life for what he's saying. How else do you explain what's going on? But Jesus doesn't stop there. He still has three more examples that he's going to give them. And we continue in verse 37. It says, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Exhibit C, God the Father. So you have, you have Jesus saying, if you don't believe John and you don't want to believe that I am doing what I'm doing here on earth, how about the word of God? The person, because remember the religious leaders, you know, they, they, they believed in God. That, that was actually really the, the root of the issue. So he says, okay, so trust the words that God's saying. Jesus states the third witness to his deity is God the Father, and he, and he actually gives him a reference back to something that is recorded in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 and 11. At Jesus' baptism, God's voice is actually audible. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with, with you I am well pleased. Now this was a public place. People saw this happen and they heard the voice. They, they would have said, I remember that. And you're saying that it was God the Father. Oh, okay, so he's actually able to connect these points. During a very public ceremony, God says, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. And he alludes to the fact that that God's words, including scripture, actually point to the fact that he is indeed who he says he is, which leads us to our fourth exhibit, exhibit D, the scriptures. And this one we're going to spend a little bit more time on because I really, I love what Jesus says here and it helps us. Uh, this, this one is the one we have the most access to. This, this proof, this witness that Jesus is about to say is something that you and I can witness all the time, each and every day from an app on our phone or a book that we carry. 
And so I wanted to spend a little bit about this, but let's read what he says. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Basically saying, you value the scriptures highly and they're telling you I am who I am. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? So it's at this point we, we, get, we get to a stage where expectations from the Jewish leaders and reality start to collide. And if you've ever lived a moment of life, then you know that one of the best ways to get to conflict is to have unmet expectations, right? Like that is just, that's so true. Uh, I, I, I was in California a couple weeks ago for some work stuff, and I was having to carve out some time for work, and I like to work in public places, so I decided I'm gonna go to Starbucks. Um, I do that often, so you know, pretty much you go there, you're gonna get the same thing, whether it's in Washington or Anaheim. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna go to Starbucks. So I get in line, I'm like, okay, I have a couple things that I like to order. So I go, um, they, they say, sir, what can we get you today? I said, I would love a grande cold brew. And they said, oh, sorry, sir, we don't have any cold brew today. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's weird. You're Starbucks, right? Like, you should have cold brew at this point. That's okay. I get it. Sometimes you run out of stuff. So I said, okay, how about um, this new thing that they have is, is an iced cappuccino, and it comes with this stuff called cold foam on the top. I really like it. So I said, okay, I'll have a grande iced cappuccino with the cold foam, and they said, oh, sir, we're so sorry. We don't have nonfat milk. And I said, are you Starbucks? Is this real? Am I on candy camera? <laughs> are you joking right now, right? Like, you don't have milk or coffee? Like, what? What's going on here? And, uh, and so like in my heart, I was starting to get a little frustrated. I realized I'm not going to be that person because if you were here a couple months ago, I told you that if you, know, if you can't be nice to your barista, then don't go out. And so I was going to be nice to my barista. And I said, okay, well, what do you have? <laughs> Which passive aggressive, I know. Um, so I got a little jab in there. Um, I said, do you, do you, you know, I, so we, I arrived at a drink, but I, but <laughs> but the thing was, is I had these expectations, right? And, and these expectations that I placed, even as simple as they were, right? We're, we're talking about very serious expectations here, which we'll get into in a second. But when you don't have your expectations met, when, they are unmet, when there are unmet expectations, conflict will arise. It's just a reality for life, for work, for marriage, relational. It doesn't matter. If expectations are unmet, there will be conflict, now, the Jewish leaders, are, they're very familiar with Scripture. So the fact that Jesus is starting to reference Scripture, they're probably peeking up just a little bit more, like as if they weren't listening already, but they're like, okay, he's going to talk about Scripture. What's he going to say now? They were so familiar, they would often be required to memorize much of the Old Testament in the original Hebrew language. So they're, again, very familiar. Now, there's plenty of passages in the Old Testament that tell of the coming of a Messiah. And so the idea that the Son of God is coming is not the thing that they have a problem with. It's the way that Jesus is that they have a problem with. Jesus says that the scriptures are one of the primary witnesses to his deity, specifically because they do point to him as the Son of God. 
Now imagine this, for generations and generations and generations, the Jewish people have been longing for this Messiah. They have been hoping for a redeemer and a restorer. And they were hoping that, that Jesus would just, the Messiah, not necessarily Jesus at this point, but what they think about as a Messiah, that he would just come in and that he would celebrate them for being ultra-righteous, law-abiding people. Then he would just crush their enemies and elevate them to this place of glory and highness. Instead, they get Jesus. They wanted Thor. They got Jesus. <laughs> Unmet expectations, right? They wanted this strong man who was going to bring the hammer down on all the people who weren't listening to them. Gosh dang it. And instead, they have Jesus who's rebuking them for the very thing that they put all of their worth into their self-righteousness. He rebukes that in favor of godly righteousness. He's teaching them new commandments like love God and love your neighbor. And they're like, what? I don't like my neighbor. I just want to love God. I want to follow his rules. And he's like, no, you have to love them too. It's how you will show that you are one of my disciples. So I want to spend just a couple minutes here just correctly understanding scripture as I know how to, right? Because they obviously took the scripture and they, and they used it to their benefit. They memorized it, they knew it well, and they said, you know what, we're going to celebrate the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. And so I have, I have three things that have helped me, and I want to give them to you just quickly, that have helped me understand scripture in its totality, that, helped me shape, that has helped shape the way that I understand Jesus' will for my life. And so the first one is this. Uh, the Bible, from cover to cover, is primarily about Jesus. If you're in your John journal, you can write that down or however you want to. But the Bible, from cover to cover, is primarily about Jesus. The Bible is given to us for our benefit, but it's not about us. Jesus says to the religious leaders that they look to the scriptures to give them life. So they're actually holding the scriptures in an improper regard. And it causes them to stumble when Jesus actually shows up. And he says, you know what? This isn't just for you guys. It's for everybody. I came to give everyone who wants to believe new life. Right? He says, uh, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You look to the scriptures. And so they, they, they hold the scriptures in improper regard when our reality is that the scriptures point to Jesus who can actually give life. The Old Testament points to Jesus just as much as the New Testament points to Jesus. The Old Testament points to the need for the Savior, right? What life would be like without Jesus and what God was doing. He was saving them and they would, they would be like, God, save us when they were in trouble. And then as soon as he did, they'd go back to their wicked ways, and then they'd fall, and God save us, and he would continue to redeem them, and it was like, man, this sounds a lot like my daily life, <laughs> right? Just like, oh, God, thank you. Oh, I'm back over here doing the wrong thing, right? Paul writes in Romans, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do, right? That's, that's life. And so they, they, they hold these scriptures in high regard, but they don't actually know what the scriptures are saying, because all of scripture points to Jesus. The second thing is this. The word of God is given to us to impact our mind and our heart. Jesus tells them that he knows that they do not have the love of God in their hearts. Imagine that. 
He says that to them. He says, I know you don't have the love of God in your hearts. And they, I just, oh, can you imagine the very thing that you were like, no, I believe in God. I love God. And he's like, no, you don't because the way you act. How hard that must have been for them to hear. He says, the, the, the word of God is given to us to lovingly build people up, not tear them down. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, uh, it tells us that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Right? If it's just about what's in the head, it puffs you up. And that's where they were, prideful Arrogant people waiting for us, waiting for Thor to come and smash their enemies. And Jesus is saying, no, no, we're going to love people. We're going to build them up. They let their knowledge get in the way of the relational way that Jesus had created for us to live. The relational way that Jesus had mimicked or had shown us how to relate to people that he modeled while he was here on earth. He lived day and night with the people who weren't supposed to be around him. He's giving us a good example, so it should impact our mind and our heart. Know it, but let it transform you. Put it in your mind, let it change your heart. And the third thing is this. The scripture is a window into the heart of God. Now, I was downtown the other day, a lot of construction. I went to the new Nike store. Who's been in the new Nike store? Anybody? No? Okay, that's fine. I get it. Most people. Dennis? Yes. My man back there, all right? So I'm in the new Nike store, and I'm actually near the window. And you've probably experienced this before, but I'm just kind of standing there, and I'm looking out the window, actually, not even looking at stuff. And this, this girl walks by, and she's doing one of these things. You know, when you're staring at, at the window, but what you're actually doing is staring at yourself. You know, and she starts to, like, she stands there, and she starts to, like, you know, do things that girls do. I don't know. And uh, she's, like, looking at it, and I'm, like, staring right at her, realizing she doesn't see me. She doesn't see me right now. So she's, and I, I, I'm kind of enjoying the moment. And then all of a sudden, like eyes wide, oh my gosh. And I'm like staring there and I just, I just kind of smiled at her and she waved at me. And then she like went about her business like so embarrassed, right? Because she was using the reflection on the window to really stare at herself, right? And I was like, oh my gosh, how perfect is that for what Jesus is saying right here? He's saying, the scriptures are a window to Jesus, but you're using it to stare like a mirror. You're not actually interested in what they say. You're just interested in how they build you up, how they make you look, how they make you feel, right? They're just standing there and they're like, oh man, we look so good at that. And Jesus is like, no, it's a window. Look through it. Look at me. Don't stare at yourself in it. It's a window, not a mirror. The scriptures are a window into the heart of God, and yet we are silly people all the time when we just look at the scripture and say, oh, I'm so good, right? And he even talks about that. He says, you build each other up. You're so good. No, you're so good. No, you're so good. And Jesus is like, stop. None of you are good. I will make you better, but you're not good. I just couldn't help but laugh when I thought about that. I was like, man, what, <clears throat> what a great example of how we treat scripture. It should be a window into the heart of God. It points to Jesus. It points to, to what he did and what he's going to do. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with this. I'm going to invite the band up. We're going to sing a song in a sec. But I'm going to end with the fifth and final proof that Jesus gives. And it's actually Moses. And so let's read it, and then I'll explain to you why this is significant. He says in verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Basically saying, I'm not here to do any accusing. 
But there is one who accuses you, one who has already accused you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So he wraps up this conversation, bringing Moses into the picture. Now, if you're familiar, Moses was a hero to them. He did incredible things with God's help on behalf of their people. So they, at this point, would have just just stories and tales and writings of how amazing Moses was. And Jesus says, you put your hope in Moses, right? you, You put your hope in him, but what he did was he actually wrote about me. They put their hope into what Moses was saying, into the letter of the law, to the, to the writings that he had given. But, they, but he says, and instead, you, you missed the point that the writings are all pointing towards me as the Messiah. And this whole argument, all five of the points that Jesus is trying to make are, are, are very interesting because what he's trying to do is he's trying to get their attention. Ending it with the fact that your very hero, the person that you look up to most, would tell you that you're wrong. Jesus has made five, and they've been increasingly hard points for them to hear. So you can imagine this is a point where they either decide, okay, I need to do what I need to do, or I'm just going to keep going on the path that I'm on. And as I said earlier, much like most people do, when they're argued against, they just get further enraged and they go further into their hole. But still, Jesus is trying to get their attention. He's trying to do something that would just say, I don't know how to get your attention. I I know you're so interested in yourself. Please just look at me and watch what I'm about to do. This whole thing, this whole reason that we're in this this situation that Jesus is in, this, this story that we're in that he's having to prove himself is because he healed somebody. The problem was is he did it on the Sabbath. He did something that all of us want, but he did it on the wrong day according to the letter of the law. And instead of celebrating that, they were holding the law in highest regard and said, mm He challenged the very thing that they held in highest regard. So I have a question. Are you frustrated with something that's not going the way that you want? Because the Pharisees were. They're so frustrated with Jesus that they couldn't see who he was, that the very person they were hoping for is actually standing in front of them, and they're just going to try to kill him instead. Are you asking God to do something in a particular situation that you're stuck in? Maybe he's trying to use that very situation to get your attention. I know it's like, oh, I don't want to hear that. Maybe he's trying to use that very situation to say, look at what I'm doing. Knowing full well that we put our hope into so many other things besides him. And he's saying, no, that's not going to work. It's just going to let you down. It's just going to make you frustrated, make you sad, make you depressed. It's going to ruin you. You have to put your hope in me. Just as Jesus was saying, you're looking to the wrong things. Look at me. Jesus is saying, stop looking at the things that you're looking at to be the thing that I'm supposed to be. Pastor Joe Whitwer, good friend and mentor of both Pastor Kelly and I, he says it this way. Sin is just disordered loves. When we love something more than God, it becomes a sin. If we love something less than God, if God is our highest affection, 
other things will fall in line. He said that, and I've thought about that for years because I'm like, that is so true. If I love God as my highest affection, then my finances will be stewarded properly. If I love God with my highest affection, then the way that I treat my kids and the way I treat my spouse and the way that I treat you guys and my friends and, 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 and every single person that I have a relationship with will be better. But if I start to elevate those things into a place they don't deserve, the burden that happens to those people, if money's my hope, it will crush me. If people, if my wife is my hope, it will crush her. If my kids are my hope, it will crush them. If you're putting your hope in me, I'm sorry, you failed already. Put your hope in Jesus. Why don't you do this? Why don't you stand up with me? Please. I just want to leave you this last little tip, and then we're just going to sing a song, just like we did before. We're going to make music, a joyful noise to Jesus. But that thing that you're probably almost certainly dealing with, that you're just wondering, why am I dealing with this? I just want to encourage you with this. God's timing is perfect. Ours is not. So we would do well to trust in his timing, to to lean into what he's doing in that situation. There There are story after story after story of people in this church that have seen God do something miraculous, have seen something, have seen God do something well, and yet oftentimes the next Sunday we're right back in a different difficult situation. It's just the nature of living in a broken world. But let me just encourage you. You have the evidence that better things are on the horizon. You have the evidence. Jesus is your hope. He's saying, just look to me. Just look to me.